Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 375, Starvation and Betrayal. Last time, on May 10th, 1942, Field Marshal Kesselring had told Berlin, in regards to Malta, there was nothing left to bomb, which was true enough, but the island and its inhabitants were still defiant, just starving, and though Kesselring still wanted to invade, he was waiting for Tobruk on North Africa's coast to fall back into the hands of the Axis, which was about to happen. For now, though, he would let starvation do his work for him. Not that those on Malta knew this. To their thinking, the invasion was coming any day now. Yes, the air attacks had decreased, as had the night bombings, but Kesselring had been right. There was little left to bomb. And yet, each day the invasion did not come, but the deprivations continued, there was a chance that the Maltese people would rise up and say, all right, that's enough. We want to surrender, for surely there will be food given to us by the Italians. To Lord Gort, the new governor, and to Hugh Pugh, the air officer commanding, this was a real possibility. The question was how to counter this. No one in uniform wanted to attempt to force loyalty from the locals, so the only other option was to make sure there was enough food, at least to survive on, for the moment. Which would mean, ironically, more restrictions. A delicate balance, indeed. Given Malta's proximity to Italy, there was a strong connection and long history between the two, but overall, the Maltese were currently pro-British and endured this suffering with stoicism. Besides, not too many islanders were fans of Il Duce and his bullying ways, much less the ruthless Germans. But the collective attitude of any people can change suddenly, which is why, back in February, then-Governor Dobby had removed the pro-Italian Chief Justice and some 40 others to Sudan and Lord Gort was about to have his own chance of keeping the hearts and minds of the Maltese on the Allied side. Which brings us to Carmelo Borg Pisani, born near the Grand Harbor in 1915. As he had been interested in art, he was able to join the pro-Italian Umberto I art studio in Valletta. This connection would lead to the pro-Italian 
which later became pro-fascist organizations, on Malta and the Italian mainland. In time, Pisani agreed with Rome that the British were ruining Malta's collective soul with their ways, and the island needed to join in with Il Duce's Italy. When Italy declared war on the Allies, Pisani renounced his British citizenship, but never requisitioned Italian citizenship, though this may have been an oversight. Still, he was allowed to join the Black Shirts, the fascist militia, and later military intelligence. Fast forward to May 1942. Pisani volunteered to go back to Malta to spy for the Axis, to determine just how well, or not, the Maltese were faring, and of course to get a sense of the strength of the island's defenses. But Pisani's first day on Malta would go the way of Mussolini's first day of war, when he lost hundreds of ships destroyed by the British, as Il Duce had not forewarned his navy or merchant ships to prepare adequate defenses. Pisani, again a native of Malta, put ashore under the steep, dingly cliffs, smack dab in the center of the island's southwest coast. But rough seas carried away all his supplies, and as he was unable to climb up the cliffs, he was forced to wave down a passing ship. It was either that or starve to death, something the Maltese were trying not to do, or he could have climbed up and then perhaps dropped to the sea anyway. Unfortunately for the young fascist, the boat that he signaled was a British patrol boat. Soon Pisani was at the naval hospital RNH in Tarfa. But being a local himself, soon Pisani was recognized by a childhood friend, well, former friend, which led to Pisani being accused of treason. Now, here's where the would-be spy's luck runs out. As he had denounced his British citizenship, but was not yet an official Italian citizen, which would have given him the status of prisoner of war, young Pisani was up a creek without a paddle. Though the expression did not exist at the time, Pisani and his family, which still lived on the island, was about to find out that Lord Gort don't play. All they needed to know was that Gort had earned the nickname Tiger during the Great War. You must be pretty tough to have other soldiers call you Tiger. Either way, Gort had an opportunity to show the Axis that he would not tolerate spies and he could show the Maltese that he would take any steps to protect them. Pisani was tried and found guilty of treason. He would be hanged on November 18th of that year. But there's more to the story. There's a very good chance that the fascists sent this young man, age 27, to Malta alone, knowing he would be captured and executed. This would then give Mussolini a propaganda tool to beat over Gort's head. If this is so, well, then it failed. The Maltese, though sad about the fate of Pisani, were determined to stick it out with the British, so never seriously protested. And as for Gort, one look at his picture made lead one to take mercy on the bat that was about to hit that head. Case closed. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level. 
by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination, YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. In truth, the entire Pisani affair was only a blip on Gort's radar. No, he was more afraid of the Maltese rising up or becoming apathetic due to the lack of food first and bombing second. Still, needs must. So, more reductions were announced. Sugar, rice, kerosene, coffee, and soap were on the list. And as they were running out of fodder, the number of animals on the island had to be reduced. But at least there would be meat from the culling. The horses were spared as their powerful bodies had much use. But also a set number of goats for milk, cows, again milk, and chickens for eggs were pardoned. The rest like pigs, sheep, and the remaining goats, were slaughtered, and the amount of drinkable water was also tightened. But the Maltese went along with these measures, and it made them feel that they were a part of the war effort, which, of course, they were, as the Axis were focused on them and their pain to bring down the Allied defenders. Lastly, on this note, now it was Gort's turn to reach out to London to ask for flour, oil, ammunition, fuel, and spare parts for the planes, as all the cuts in the world could not produce these items. Yet the reply was, we will send what we can, when we can, when we feel the items would actually reach Malta safely. As June opened up, the Maltese adults were given just over 1,000 calories a day. The children, less. The servicemen got more, but spent their waking hours exerting themselves mightily, thus were constantly hungry anyways. And being generally young men, a time in their life when the niceties are not observed or respected, the servicemen forged ration tickets, bought food on the black market, or simply stole food from gardens at night. Being young, they easily forgave themselves. It was hoped by all on Malta that the worst of the deprivations was about to end. In early June, the island was told that two convoys would soon be on their way, one from Alexandria and the other from Gibraltar. This was only possible because of the change in balance of power, i.e. the increase of Spitfires and the decrease in German planes based at Sicily. Still, it was a heavy risk. Nothing was guaranteed. The reason for this heavy risk was that now that Japan was in the war, some of the ships of the Western Mediterranean fleet had been sent there, and promised American help was mostly negated by that same threat 
on the other side of the planet. Yet the attempt had to be made. Time would only make things worse. Late on June 14th, Hugh Pugh arrived at 601 Squadron's mess at Slima, just above Grand Harbor, to inform them that they would be protecting a convoy as it closed in on Malta. However, there were a few complications. The good news was that the convoys were already en route, but the convoy from Alexandria had been hit hard by North African-based Axis planes, which again made the war there important to the wider area. Hugh Pugh confessed that he was not sure of that convoy's current status. Who knows what was happening to it? And as for the ships coming from Gibraltar, it was reported that several vessels had already been lost. But this is where 601 Squadron comes in. Early the next morning, those escort ships, for both convoys, would have to turn around, leaving the merchant ships vulnerable at a time when the Axis powers would have a go at them. The best Malta could do was send up Spitfires once each respective convoy was 70 miles away from the island. But here's the rub. As 601 Squadron had 12 planes, there could only be four planes over a convoy at any one time. Why? Because of the distance. The other two groups of four would either be on their way to or from the convoy, and this was with extra fuel tanks attached. The pilots wondered at their odds of saving these ships, much less saving themselves. Imagine how the merchantmen felt. Hugh Pugh finished up with, If the convoy comes under attack as you are about to leave, stay there and fight, then ditch, and hopefully one of those ships you just saved will pick you up. Recently arrived pilot Dennis Barnham was not excited about his prospects of ever seeing home again. Dennis was picked to lead the third group of four and just knew that this was his end, which seemed to be confirmed when, just before his group took off, they were told that the first two groups had been wiped out by more numerous enemy fighters. Oh well, needs must. Dennis and company took off, and sure enough, on their way to the rendezvous point, they spotted two Italian cruisers on their way to the same location. Dennis did not have the fuel to mix it up with them, so flew on, which did not stop the cruisers from taking shots at the passing-by Spitfires. Flying towards Alexandria, the third group arrived at their location, but saw no Allied ships. Circling around, they soon spotted oil slicks on the water's surface. Maybe they were all lost, like the Spitfires before them, which would explain why no enemy planes were in the area, because there was no reason for them to be there anymore. Only upon landing would Dennis find out that, one, his convoy had actually been a few miles to the south of where they were supposed to be, and two, the other members of 601 Squadron were just fine. Someone with cruel intentions has started a horrible rumor, and it had spread quickly. Why? Because it was so believable and possible. Which is not to say the convoys got through. No, fate had decided that Malta's story of defiant resilience in the face of overwhelming odds was not quite done. When it came time for Dennis to lift off again, some of his mates, who were flying to protect the convoy from Gibraltar had seen lots more action. The question was, 
had they had lots more success. Raoul Dado Longley and Buck McNair had flown west. Actually, Longley had flown three times that day. But that was because the action there was hot and heavy. The pilots chased after bombers and were chased in their turn by numerous fighters and watched as their torpedo bombers went after the enemy surface ships. To their eyes, several Italian ships were hit. Did they sink? No one could say for sure. Such is the chaos of war, but what none of the pilots would know is that though one Italian cruiser was sunk and a battleship damaged, the Axis had won the day, on both fronts. Late on April 15th, the convoy coming from Alexandria was ordered to turn around. It was just too hot. As for the Gibraltar convoy, they had already lost two of the 11 ships, and three escorts so far had been sunk. And more ships and planes would be lost. By the time it was all over, only two of the 17 ships reached Malta. At least the unloading of these two vessels went by quickly, but it was hardly a silver lining among the clouds. These 25,000 tons of supplies were no more than a drop of water in the Mediterranean Sea. All this, Lord Gort told the Maltese in a radio address on the evening of June 16th. He told them that he would hold nothing back, and he did not. But it was all bad news. So Gort did the only thing left to him. He relied on the people's faith by declaring that their cause was just and that God would see them through. On a more earthly plane, he reminded all to conserve and avoid the black market. Oh, and that another convoy would be attempted when it seemed it would have a better chance than this one. It only took a day, but it was realized that the flour from one of the two successful ships was contaminated with oil. It was edible, but just. The trick was not to eat too much of the bread at any one time, and this is what the Maltese and servicemen did. Could it get any worse? The answer was, yes, of course it could. Lord Gort soon found himself with another problem. The morale of his men was slipping. Oh, they were keen to fight. That wasn't the problem. As there was little to eat or drink, the men's downtime, something they normally looked forward to, was now a study of inactivity and boredom. They couldn't chase the local girls, there were darn few European ladies on the island, and there was little enough to drink. So they spent their days of dreaming of food and women, though maybe not in that order. It was depressing, and for men like Longley, it was almost as bad, but not quite, as when he was flying. What made Longley angry to the point of gleeful murder was when he spotted Italian pilots flying low, trying to locate downed RAF pilots. The Italian version of shooting fish in a barrel. As they, the downed pilots, were considered low-hanging fruit, if I may be pardoned, that's where the Italians focused. Longley would spot some of these planes and happily dive down, knowing their attention was diverted. He would let loose with his bullets and cannon, smiling each time a target started smoking. Let's see how much they like treading water for a few hours, but even this victory almost cost Longley and others their lives. 
The German pilots figured out pretty quickly what the Italians were up to. Yes, they respected them even less for this, but the wise Germans found a way to use it. As Longley and others were shooting at the Italians, the German 109s then bounced the Spitfires. Soon the RAF pilots were pouring on the speed, weaving, dodging, anything they could to get out of this ruthless trap. Most made it home, but Longley would land and be shaking as he walked to the dispersal hut. Knowing his life had passed before his eyes, but he had been a little too busy to see it. And Longley would continue to shake and walk as he and the others no longer had rides to their quarters as there was not enough gasoline. So the day for a pilot would go like this. Walk two miles to the airfield, fight with flies all day, eat food contaminated with oil, go up and try not to die, then land and walk back the two miles to their bunks. The joy of living and fighting had long since deserted them. But between the flies, bad food, the malted dog, dysentery, tons of walking, and little of everything else, the men still defended this island. Pilot Peter Rothwell, all of 21 years old, was in charge of the island's lone bomber unit. And on June 5th, as a part of the special duties flight, he dropped a torpedo that struck the Italian merchant ship Reginaldo Giuliani. As the stricken vessel was 120 miles, 20 degrees from Benghazi, the crew did what it could to salvage their ship, but the damage was too great. Later that day, an Italian destroyer finished her off after rescuing its crew. This was the good news, but it had been months since a Malta-based plane had sunk an enemy vessel. Those glory days were gone. Later that month, Rothwell and the others of his unit were sent to Taranto three times, but this was not like the earlier attack by Admiral Cunningham that had been a stunning success. Now the Italians were ready and made Rothwell and the others fly carefully, which meant less accurately if they wanted to continue flying at all. At one point, when his Wellington had the attention of an entire Italian fleet coming out of Taranto, manifested by thousands of bullets and shells, Rothwell asked himself, is it really wise for a 21-year-old to be leading this unit? But as it was, he had the most experience, which made him the perfect candidate. Its own, Malta's own special Catch-22. As they say in the military, fake it until you make it. Which makes this last part all the more funny and sad. Back in March, a sign was put up at all the gun sites that were protecting the various airfields and the other valuable targets. It read, Anxiety neurosis is a term used by the medical profession to commercialize fear. Anxiety neurosis is a misnomer which makes cold feet appear respectable. To give way to fear is to surrender to the enemy attack on your morale. To admit to anxiety neurosis is to admit a state of fear which is either unreasonable or has no origin in your conception of duty as an officer. If you are a man, you will not permit your self-respect to admit to anxiety neurosis or to show fear. Believe it or not, these sentiments did not stop the men and women 
from becoming fearful and giving into that fear then and much later. Many from Malta and other heavily bombed sites admitted to jumping at loud sounds decades after the war. The shell shock from those days became their lifelong companion. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, to make a long story short, I took the family on a vacation out west. We went to Sedona, which is amazing. You should go. The Grand Canyon, uh, the North Rim, that is. Um, uh, Phoenix and some other places, and then we had... We traveled from like the North Rim to Vegas, which was incredible. Just everything was beautiful and different. Uh, it was incredible. So we had a great time. And near the end of the vacation, I got COVID and I lovingly gave it to my family because I share everything I have with them. And so the last week, a week and a day, eight days, I've been literally laying, laying on my back. This is as good as my voice is now. I have a membership episode recorded, but I'm going to wait a day or two because this has got to be intolerable for you guys, but I wanted to put something out because, like I said, it had been just over two weeks. So anyways, hopefully we'll get um, caught up on a right back to a regular schedule soon. I'll get my voice back. Um, and this is not me preaching. This is not me playing politics, but do whatever you got to do to not get COVID. Um, I've, uh, I've got my vaccine. I've been boosted. My family was boosted right before we left. However it happened, it didn't matter. Uh, the COVID tore through all of us, and we were li literally lying in bed for days just wanting everything to end. So uh, it strips you. It absolutely strips you of all defenses of everything. You have no energy, and you just lie there, and you feel everything, which is pretty intense. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was bad. But anyway, just please be careful. COVID has not gone anywhere. Um, I was... Uh, careful for two years. Uh, it only took bumping into one person somewhere at the North Rim and I got COVID. So just be careful out there. Uh, I'll see you as, I, as soon as I can with the next uh, episode. Take care, everyone.